Hello, hello. This is Allie Decker, and you're listening to the Long Game Podcast. Today, I chat with one of my favorite people in the world, Kaylee Moore. I met Kaylee five years ago when I was initially moving into a freelance writing career. I was her very first coaching client. I stalked her on the internet and begged her to take me on as a new client, and I give her uh, full credit for where I am today in my career. Uh, Kaylee is a super well-known freelance writer, coach, and consultant. You might have seen her active on Twitter or as the co-host of either the Creative Class podcast with Paul Jarvis or her podcast called Freelance Writing Coach, which she hosts with Emma Samasco. Kaylee started her freelance career nine years ago and has grown her brand into an amazing mix of B2B SaaS content marketing for brands like Shopify and Big Commerce. Uh, she also writes authoritative retail journalism pieces for Forbes and Vogue Business. She's built an amazing freelance community on Twitter and across the internet, and she also consults for uh, many startup brands as they build their own content marketing engine. Um, In this episode, Kaylee and I discuss everything from building career and freelance writing to honing our own creative catalysts in a super noisy world. Without further ado, here's Kaylee. love to hear to start kind of like how you would define what you do I know your role and like your I guess professional identity has like shifted a lot I know to me you're still like freelance writer but I know your job's like job your career your brand is a lot bigger now so I'd love to hear like in your own words how you would define that Oh, this is always such a tough question for me. And we had family in town last weekend and they were all asking me what I do. And I did such a horrible job explaining it so much so that my husband was like, I think you need to work on that a little bit. (laughs) So I'm going to do my very best. Okay. But yes, I, I do still identify as a freelance writer. Although I would say now I'm more of kind of working in an editor consultant capacity. So I I do work with a team of subcontractors for some of the work that I do. Um, Still a lot of work within the e-commerce and software as a service space, kind of the e-commerce platforms like Shopify, big commerce, those types of people. And then the tools that integrate with those for um, the seller side of things. So like email marketing, um, referral tools, um, affiliate programs, things like that. The, the two things go hand in hand. So I help with a lot of blog content, usually long form um, with expert insights tied in because I have a pretty sizable network at this point in time. Um, lots of research, um, lots of like search engine optimization type stuff. Um, but I also do a lot of other things. So I also have contentremix.com now, which is mm-hmm. taking podcast or video audio and then turning those into narrative style recaps. So I have a team that helps me execute those not super marketing it at this point, but yeah. like slowly ramping up with that. It's been probably like five or six months so far. And then I also do consulting work. So for teams who are working hard to scale up, so usually startups who are pretty lean teams and looking to scale up on their content production, like how do I find freelance writers? What do I onboarding wise need to provide for the material wise? Like what's a good writing brief look like? So kind of some handholding on that type of stuff as teams work on how do we up production without hiring a bunch of people? So those are, those are kind of the three main buckets of things that I do today. I also occasionally contribute to retail publications. So like Forbes, 
ad week. Um, I haven't done Vogue business in a while, but I, I do that sometimes as well. And then a little bit for the quality edit as well. So very busy, mini spinning. Yeah. Plates. So between the three buckets, how would you like, what percentage of your time do you spend on each basically? Um, it depends on how many consulting arrangements I have at the time, but I would say the bulk of it is still with the content creation mm-hmm. side of things. So a lot of it at this point is like people management, um, making sure briefs are really, really thorough, a lot of editing, a lot mm-hmm. of collaborating on um, just making sure drafts are where they should be. Um, so yeah, that's that's where the bulk of my time is spent. That's awesome. I want to go back a little bit. And these are questions I think I know the answers to, but just to recap for our listeners, I want to hear about your first few freelance jobs and how it started. Let's go way back. (laughs) Okay. So I started doing this on the side while I was working my full-time job. That was about nine years ago. Um, My first couple freelance jobs, I was doing some social media management just because it was something I had experience with running my own e-commerce store. So just did Mm -hmm. some networking locally and was like, Hey, do you need a young person to basically come in and help you figure all this out? So that was my first true freelance type of work. Um, It quickly though evolved into me realizing I didn't really love that work. And so I started doing more of the writing, which I did really love. Um, And I did some like website copy projects. I did some blog writing, all of it for very, very little money, Mm -hmm. Um, but really loved the work. And was like, wow, I could do this. And like, I'm pretty efficient and I can, I like this. I want to do this Mm -hmm. full time. Um, So yeah, my first couple of jobs, I, I worked for a lot of different types of industries. So I did like an HVAC company's website. I did some um, medical independent review, like, like just so random stuff. And, and it was scary because every time I had to start a new assignment, I was starting from zero. I had to research, I had to learn about the industry. And so that was really, really stressful. So yeah, those were my first few jobs and just kind of feeling things out as I went. Yeah. I feel like most freelancers have those jobs. Like I remember someone reached out to me about writing for like a horse training site because I was from Kentucky, (laughs) (laughs) purely what they went off of. And I was like, theoretically, I should know about this, but no, I can't, I can't do this. I I remember with you, like working the coaching that you did for me, like Mm -hmm. you were the first person to teach me the importance of having a niche. And or a niche or however you pronounce yeah. it. Like that was one of the first big lessons I took away from that. And the turning down that hor- the horse job was like my first exercise in that. I was like, ah, in theory, I could write about this, but it's too much. Yeah, work. that's the thing. And and when you are getting started, it's really tempting to say yes to every opportunity because yes. you're like, well, I need the money. Right. Like, I'm not busy. Right. Um, but it's so stressful. Once you get into it, you're just like, I am so out of my depths. So your, your e-commerce business was jewelry, correct? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Did that influence like how you chose your own niche and what you wrote about? Yeah. So I think I kind of naturally transitioned into that e-commerce space that I'm still in today because I had that hands-on experience. So I could pull from being that seller. You know, I could right. pull from my own experiences with testing different marketing tactics and the pain points of like being in the shoes of the merchant. And mm-hmm. so I still pull from that today. Obviously I'm always learning and I'm not in it myself anymore, but having that perspective, I think was a, a great value add as I was pitching myself for these opportunities. And I think it really did kind of harp, help start the snowball effect within that space, because then I had some sort of springboard for those conversations and saying that like, Hey, I'm not just a newbie writer. 
I've also done this a little bit myself. Yeah, that's huge. I feel like that's kind of expert insights before expert insights were a thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, Do you think now, like knowing what you do, you would ever jump back into being an e-commerce merchant or starting a store? Yeah, I think about it all the time. (laughs) I really do. And the reason I sold my business when I started doing this full time is that I was like, I can't do two things well. And I don't want to half-ass two things. I'd rather whole-ass one thing. (laughs) So I... I don't know if you can say ass, maybe bleep me, (laughs) but, um, (laughs) but yeah, I, I, I do think about it and I, especially with everything that I know today and all the opportunity that I see within the e-commerce space, it's really tempting, but I try to remind myself like shiny object syndrome is real and just try to focus. I just, I feel it too. I wonder if most writers do, because as a writer, you get to touch so much like high level, right? Like the research, like sometimes I'm researching something and I'm like, I want to (laughs) play, like I Mm want to do this, but then I just have to write about it. And I'm like, okay, this is all I can do today. All I can manage well. So I definitely feel that. Um, So I want to touch more on, you know, so you went from e-commerce and you still, you wrote about it and the the SaaS tools integrate with those platforms but I see you working more with D2C now. Like I've seen a lot of things that you post, products that you get or buy from friends or clients. Do you work with more D2C now than you did before? Or is it still kind of a healthy mix between like software and then and then D2C? You know, it's funny. I actually don't work with that many D2C companies at okay. all. Um, okay. I've done some copy auditing for them in the past, but it's mostly in the context of like the reporting work that I do um, and just industry expertise. I feel like that's kind of how I've navigated and fallen into that, that sub niche within the e-commerce world. Um, and I think that that was part of the, part of the reason I've really put a flag in this particular area, because a couple of years ago, my husband was like, you know, this D to C space is direct to consumer space is emerging and you should like, you should look into that. And there's this whole community online of people who talk about this one specific area. And so by being enmeshed in that community and becoming part of that world, it opened doors to new opportunities as well. Mm -hmm. So not only does it help the client work that I still do today, but on the reporting side of things, it's, it's opened more doors there. It's helped me get more um, like trend insight, news insight, Mm -hmm. things like that. So those two things go together really well. Yeah. I would imagine too, writing for publications like Shopify and big commerce, like having that kind of direct network, you can be a really awesome advocate for them. And then you mm-hmm. have like sources automatically, like you don't have to go yes. for quotes and data and yeah. stuff like that. And it's great for SEO too, because every time yeah. you quote somebody and you let them know when the piece goes live, that is a way to yeah. boost organic sharing. They don't always share it, but a lot of times people do. So that's, that's a nice value add that I can bring to the table. For sure. So how did you start building that network? Just curiosity and reaching out? Yeah. A lot of it's through Twitter. Um, so I've been on Twitter for a really long time. And again, my husband was like, you should check out these people who are talking about this. And so mm-hmm. I went to Twitter, started kind of seeing what these people were talking about. Um, and then those conversations sometimes moved into Slack groups or one-to-one phone calls. Um, so yeah, it just kind of evolved from there. But I think also it's like looking to the niche publications who are writing about those types of things too. So just by finding them and then becoming part of those communities and really participating there and getting some name and face recognition. I know that that sounds kind of vague when I talk through it, but that's really how it happened. Yeah. So how do you balance like your creative, like 
your creative, like content creation work, and then like pouring into those communities and staying engaged? Like, how do you mentally balance those two things? I think staying engaged with the communities is sort of like my office water cooler. So I have been working alone from home for eight years. There's no sound on all day long because I can't (laughs) write to any noise or anything. So I use those as breaks throughout the day to talk to people and Mm -hmm. to feel that, that connection and to beat away the isolation that sometimes comes with this type of work. So I don't think it's necessarily an either, either, or, but it's kind of a nice supplement to my daily work day to just be able to pop in and like, see what people are talking about and go back and forth and chime in with my two cents, things like that. So what does your day-to-day look like these days? So I typically do two main sprints for my workday, one in the morning, one in the afternoon, break it up with a really short lunch break and a couple of dog walks. (laughs) Um, So a lot of it, I sit down around eight o'clock most of the time and I'll do my first sprint. I'll start with some email, just kind of putting together my to-do list for the day. And then I'll get into a sprint of deep work for about two, two and a half hours. Um, Take a walk, come back, answer Mm -hmm. a few more emails, take a lunch break, another work sprint in the afternoon, about two, two and a half hours. Cause I find that like much more than that, the quality really starts to drop off. So I've tried to just really tap into those two parts of the day where I know I can be really productive and try to maximize those as much as I can. So no calls, then no meetings, just sit down, knock off the to-do list for the day. And then I, I try to wrap things up around like four or four 30. Mm-hmm. Um, again, just like popping into email, seeing what things are left on the to-do list, um, checking in with people, just kind of like management stuff towards the end of the day. Gotcha. How do you balance like when you do have meetings and interviews, like, do you sprinkle those in or do you tend to batch them on certain days of the week? Yeah, I definitely try to batch them for a long time. I didn't do that. And so I would have Mm -hmm. calls sprinkled at different times all throughout the week and it would just wreck my productivity and my workflow. I could never get into a, a good session of deep work because I was always thinking about, okay, I need to get ready for this, or this is coming up. It's just really distracting to me. So, um, yeah, I started batching them on one to two days a week and I started implementing the no calls on Friday rule, which has been amazing. (laughs) Yes. I've heard of that. I need to start doing that. Um, tell me about how you schedule out your projects. Like how do you know how long they're going to take you? Cause I know you said you have three main buckets, sometimes other stuff going mm-hmm. on. How do you divvy those up? It's really, I don't have a strategic or scientific way of doing it. It's really just, I know kind of what my capacity is at this point after doing it for so long. So I'm just kind of always mentally tracking. Um, I have a paper to-do list and just kind of like a spreadsheet of all the things that I'm doing right now, deadlines, due dates, all those things are written down. So they're always right in front of me. So I'm always just really cognizant, mindful of what's coming up and how, how full my plate is. And Mm -hmm. so once the plate starts getting full to the point where I'm like a little bit nervous, that's when I start saying, okay, my next available start week, start date, start date is like (laughs) three to four weeks out. And so I'll start giving myself some padding before the next project. Gotcha. Yeah. I'd say that's a good thing to do that feeling of nervousness. I think everyone knows how that feels like, Oh, going back to that whole, like, I want to say yes to this, but I know I shouldn't kind mm-hmm. of honing that judgment call. Um, yeah. So you have a podcast. I with do. Emma. Tell me mm-hmm. about that. 
So Emma Samasco is a fellow freelance writer. She and I have always done really similar work, oftentimes with a lot of the same clients. Funny enough, she also was the first SaaS client that ever hired me. So at the time she was working at grasshopper.com and was the content manager there. And through Twitter, she and I just started talking. I think it was about my e-commerce store, actually. Um, That conversation moved to the inbox and that was my first SaaS client. So she and I have worked together for a really long time. She also, shortly after started working with me, about a year after that, she quit the job and started freelance writing full-time. So really similar paths, really similar client base. And what we do on the show, which is called Freelance Writing Coach, um, we just talk about issues and and questions related to freelance writing because there's no real guidebook when it comes to how do I do this well? How do I you know, get great clients? How do I not hate my life every day? <laughs> um, so we talk about those things. And a lot of the time it's just answering questions we get from listeners um, yeah. and talking through like, how do I put together a great portfolio or how many clients should I have and, and things like that. So just talking through our own experiences, but um, trying to shed some light on on these types of topics for people who are in the same boat. Yeah. Do you still do your one-on-one coaching? You know, I have the offering out there, but I haven't done any in about a year and a half. And I think the reason for that is number one, I'm busy. Like I'm super busy with work. And number two, I've done, I've kind of transitioned more and this, what I do is always evolving, but I've transitioned more into now consulting with, um, like on the client side of things Mm -hmm. rather than working one-to-one with writers. And I, I think I like that better. I think that I, I, I just feel like it's a little bit more engaging for me at this point. And so I find myself sending those people who are interested in the coaching to other people who do that type of service. Right. Um, and so I, I love that I did that in the past and I love still talking about those and teaching about those, but the one-to-one basis, I feel like my time is like better served on the consulting side using the expertise that I have at this point. And I, that's just totally personal preference. Yeah. And I feel like that podcast is helpful. Like it's kind of right. scale. coaching at scale. That's right. But just at one time and getting them recorded, yeah. sending it out. Um, but yeah, I mean, to me, it, you have, and this might be a simplification, but you've single-handedly created that kind of freelance writing community that I think I, I certainly didn't feel that that was present when I was starting, but you were a huge help for me early on. And now, you know, me step, I'm kind of stepping back into freelancing now and seeing like the structure that you've created, if not inspired, it's like huge for me. Um, Aww. is that something that you That's kind so of nice. set out to do, or were you kind of just looking for things that you wish you had? It's, I was just, you know, there were so many things I wish I knew and I hadn't learned the hard way. So yeah, it's, it's really just sharing those things that I learned through trial and error in hopes that it'll help somebody else skip over those things that I was like, I I would have known that, or I wish I wouldn't have done that. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's just, like you said, it's coaching at scale. It's sharing that expertise. It's, um, just trying to shed some light on this because again, like people hear freelance writing or they freelance anything and they're like, Oh, you don't have a job. (laughs) <laughs> like you're doing this in between two full-time roles and that, years. yeah, that's the, that's the conception. So mm-hmm. I, I want to share that this is a really viable career path and, mm-hmm. and it can be really profitable and it's, you know, something you can do for a decade or more, um, yeah. rather than just like a stopgap mm-hmm. career solution, I guess. 
Yeah, no, I definitely, I've seen that too. The the clients that you have that you consult with, do they view freelancing in the same way? Like, do they tend to want to hire freelancers in the long run or as more of a stopgap until they build their full-time team? It really depends. But I think for a lot of, especially small teams who are just getting started, um, freelance is just like the most natural fit for them because they don't have the resources to hire full-time team members, but they need help scaling up what they're already doing. So especially when they can hire subject matter experts, it's just a really natural fit. So it depends. Sometimes they eventually want that to evolve into a team of in-house writers, but in at least in my experience, there's still always freelance writers that are part of the equation because even with the in-house team, there's still so much to do day to day. So they, as far as like production and, and scaling, they still need that external help. Yeah, I can definitely see that. I mean, I feel like that's something a lot of small teams and startups just don't have. It's not a very innate sense, like working with freelancers and managing Mm -hmm. a lot of moving parts, even though it is a sense of like outsourcing and subcontracting, there's still a lot of like structure to be created. So I would imagine Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's a good thing to learn early on so that when you do inevitably outsource in the long run, like you kind of have that skill set as a manager. Yeah. And like I said, that's a lot of what the consulting work I've done is, is like, how do we put together a style guide? What, what kind of onboarding deck do we need for our freelance writers? So they're really consistent, understand our brand. Like, do you have customer personas? Do you have an editorial calendar? Do you have a content strategy? Like all of these building blocks you need to have in place for the freelance people that you hire to be successful, just Mm -hmm. helping get those things in place. Totally. So I want to talk a little bit about creative class. I know you're not doing Mm -hmm. that anymore, Um, but I'm curious, you know, how did you get started with Paul Jarvis? Like, what did that look like? How did that catalyze like growth, business growth and work for you over time? Yeah. So creative class was a course on the business. Well, it still is a course on the business side of freelancing. Mm -hmm. Um, I took it, I think my first year into freelancing full time. So that was like 2014. I took the course Mm -hmm. Um, again, was still before that, just doing a lot of different random projects, no real niche or specialization. And I took that course and I was like, oh my gosh, this is the secret. Like, this is how I become a go-to person. I need to specialize. I need to have really professional looking processes in place. Um, basically like I just need to get my stuff together. Like I need to have a workflow and and be a professional person when I come into these working relationships. And so about two years after that, Paul sent out an email and was, um, basically just doing a survey on like, Hey, I'm going to do version two of the course. What can I do to make it better? And right off the bat, I was like, you need X, Y, and Z, and I can help you do them. And he was like, okay, why don't you come on board as a partner? And so just by kind of raising my hand and saying like, I have an idea and I can help you execute it, that opened that door to that partnership. And so he and I did that as co-teachers and collaborated on the next version of the course. Um, And that ran for probably like three years. Mm -hmm. Um, I think we had six seasons of our podcast together. Um, We had probably close to 3,500 students go through the course. Um, so it was a really great experience to see one, how the course was built because that was Paul's expertise and two, the feedback from students, um, the questions that they had. And again, that's a kind of something I springboarded off of for this new podcast that I have with Emma. So it was really cool just to 
have that as part of my journey. And, and I think that that was a good ethos builder too, because Paul had a much larger audience than I did. So yeah, it was just a cool thing to be part of. And again, like just raised my hand and said, let me help you. Here's how. So how did that close? Like what was the thought process behind the end? And like, what did that look like for you guys? Yeah. So the course now we used to launch it twice a year. It's now open indefinitely, but we're not doing the podcast anymore. Mm -hmm. But after about three years, he and I were both kind of going in different directions. He was building new software and I was doing more um, consulting and things like that, really narrowing in on the freelance writer audience rather than just like freelancers as one bucket. Yeah. And so it was just a really natural time for us to be like, okay, we should probably like move on from this, but leave it open because the material is pretty evergreen. Um, so yeah, it was just less of a time commitment on our part with no more launches, no more podcasts, but the material is still there. So it's still open today. We still have people, you know, trickle into the course, but we're not actively marketing it. We're not sending out emails, um, anything like that. Gotcha. So how do you educate yourself today? Lots of reading, lots of Twitter time too. I feel like Twitter is such a great place to um, hear about trends and and things that are emerging within your space. Um, Follow really smart people who know more than you and and see what they're talking about. Um, I also subscribe to a lot of great newsletters that are pretty niche again. Um, And so just being really curated about what things I let into my brain and let get in there because there's so much noise. Um, but yeah, I also do a lot of like researching and reading for the writing work or editing work that I do. So it's kind of part of the job, I feel like to, to stay up on things. So how do you balance, I guess this goes back to the same thing, the same question about like the community engagement, like how do you balance execution and then like absorption in your Mm. day? It's hard. It's really hard. And I struggle with that. I feel like I'm one of those people who feels like I could always be doing a little bit more. And that's a really, really slippery slope, especially when you're very competitive, you're very driven. It's really easy to be like always on, always Mm -hmm. taking things in. And so I've gotten to the point where I had to start going to therapy. I had to start pumping the brakes a little bit because I was just so overwhelmed. When I would lay down to go to sleep at night, my head would just run and run and run and run. And I would think about all the things I still needed to do, all the things I still didn't get done. Um, and it was just like this never ending cycle of bad feeling. And so I, I had to, I had to put some boundaries in place. I just recently took social media off my phone. Um, so I'm experimenting with that. And just, if I want to look at it, I can look at it on the computer. So that's one thing I've done. Um, but I've also like made sure to make time for things that are totally different from what I do day to day. So like lots of time for reading, lots of time for exercise, being outside while it's nice, um, just building in some healthy habits, like going to a yoga class once a week and and stuff like that, because it's so easy to just glued to the computer or your phone. It, I feel like I I'm especially prone to like, just really moth to the flame on that. I really feel like that is the downside of doing what you love for work because Mm -hmm. it just, it eats away at all your other time in the day. I feel that too. I had to take Twitter off my phone. I would be, I already struggle to sleep. Right. So like it's 1130 and I'm like, Oh, I'm going to try to like wind down. And I just like 
I almost said twit, <laughs> like <laughs> scroll on Twitter. And I'm like, mm-hmm. look at all the stuff people are doing. Look at all the things that I should be doing. Mm-hmm. Um, because why not? Right. And I started to feel like if I can do it, I should do it. And yeah. that's so absurd, right? Like you can do anything you want, but that doesn't mean you should be doing everything under the sun. And yeah, there's yeah. just so much opportunity now. And that's great, but it doesn't mean do it all of it, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think you and I are probably the same in that, like you're you wanna be the best. Like you wanna know all the things and do what other people are doing. And so yeah, that comparative thing that social media makes so, so easy to do. It's a really easy trap to fall into. Yeah. And, and there's like, there's so much dialogue about self-improvement today, which is Mm -hmm. great, right? Like so much better than even five years ago, but even that can feel like, look at all the things you should be improving about yourself. Like look at all the ways you could be better, all the courses you could take, all the supplements you could take, all the exercise Mm -hmm. you could be doing. And it's all in the name of like improvement and growth. But there's, I think some people just don't pace themselves in that. And then there's just inevitable burnout, not even work burnout, but like just improvement, like growth. I felt it too, because in the last year, there's, like I said, in the beginning, not a lot going on. Right. I think people are getting busier now, but look at all the time you have because you're stuck at home. Look at all the things you should be doing. Mm -hmm. Gosh, I burnt out real quick on that. I've had to scale back exist. Yeah. Like I, I cannot read business books. I can't listen to business podcasts because at the end of the day, I don't want to take in more information. I want entertainment. I want to decompress. I need a break. So I think it's really just like identifying those triggers for you that like start the anxiety cycle and then cut them (laughs) and make room for something else. (laughs) Do you listen to podcasts at all? I do listen to podcasts, but if I do, they're for fun. So the most businessy I I get is like a Tim Ferriss when he's interviewing a writer that I want to hear from. But other than that, that's it. I, it's all fun. Don't listen to business books. Nothing. What'd you say? I said, you don't listen to my first million every day. I don't, I just can't, I can't do it. Me neither. My My husband does. My favorite are um, the scary ones, the horror ones. And it's so different than what I do. And it's so refreshing because honestly, like I've found that when you lean into like what inspires you, it's going to creatively help you in what you do do every day. Even if it's super irrelevant to your work, it's all about like that personal, like that personal catalyst. But yeah, I listen to like lore and like my favorite murderer. (laughs) I love horror books. And I find that when I do sit down to work, I feel like creatively refreshed. Yes. Um, Cause gosh, my, my business cup has been overflowing for a while. <laughs> that is a great way to put it. I feel yeah. the exact same way. Yeah. I don't need any more of that. So, yeah. So what, what kind of stuff have you been reading? You know, I guess you said po- what podcast, but like, what kind of <laughs> ways do you feed yourself creatively? Yeah. So the podcasts I really love, um, there's one called art curious where they talk about, um, just interesting stories behind paintings or sculptures, things like that. It's super fun. Um, I also read a lot of hot, sexy garbage, which I would call like modern romance, yes. like e type stuff. But I mix that up with like some historical fiction, some memoir. Um, I, I do like sci-fi, but I'm like very picky about sci-fi. Mm-hmm. So I, yeah, I'm probably one of my library's best customers. I go every week and get a big, big stack of books. Oh my God. And so- 
Yeah, it's great. I save a ton of money and it's good practice. Like reading anything is good practice for your writing brain because you get really comfortable with syntax and vocabulary and and structure and writing voice and all of those things. Mm -hmm. Um, But the subject matter is fun to me. So it it doesn't feel overwhelming and it does, it feels like, Like you know, an extracurricular. Yeah. And so bath culture is another thing that I'm very into. I take a bath almost every night and that's when I do a lot of my reading. Um, And it's just a really good wind down for the end of the day. It helps me sleep. So yeah, that's, that's my thing. Oh my, my favorite book that I've read recently was one called sorrow and bliss by Meg Mason, Okay, which is fiction. Um, it was, I would compare it to like Fleabag if you watch that show. Um, but it was just a really fun read that was really beautiful and really well-written. I loved that one. So do you do any writing like outside of B2B SAS and stuff? Like how do you mm-hmm. balance your creative writing in general? Yeah. So I did the NaNoWriMo National Novel Writing Month about two years ago and and was able to finish it. I have not revisited it since then because I'm intimidated, but (laughs) I I have done some editing work for friends who have written books um, that are like fiction stories. So like, for example, I just finished editing one for a friend who was on their second or third draft. Um, And it was just a creative writing project that they did. And that really, I feel like kind of inspired me to pick mine back up, but that was such a cool thing to do. It was, it was great to switch gears and to get into the editorial mode for a creative project um, because it made me think about writing in general a lot and and what I like and what I don't like, what things work, what don't. And again, like that's a side project. It's a creative thing, but it, it does have benefits for the work that I do day to day too. So it's a good, it's a good thing to have. And then talk to me about your writing process for like a B2B SaaS or e-commerce SaaS platform, (laughs) all the words, like that (laughs) kind of work. And then like a Forbes article. Okay. Yeah. So the, the software and like e-commerce writing work that I do, it's usually, usually pretty long form, pretty research heavy. So that workflow and process is very, very regimented, very structured, Mm -hmm. starts with a super detailed writing brief. Um, And then I just do like a brain dump when I'm researching. So start building out a messy outline and then tweaking the outline to make it cleaner, make more sense, more organized, structurally, things like that. Um, Then do some outreach to people, get some quotes to tie in, um, get some data, get some images, get some examples to tie in. So that's that's kind of the format for how I build those out. but for like a Forbes or a journalism type reported piece, it's a lot quicker. Um, mm-hmm. It's usually a matter of like, here's the focus of the article. Here's some research to support it. Here's some insight from an analyst or somebody within the space. And that's it. It's yeah. it's because they're pretty short form. They're usually right. like 850 words. Right. Um, so, yeah, they're really quick to knock out. And it's, it's a pretty formulaic approach. Gotcha. So how do you... Do you pitch those ideas or do they send you those? Most of the time I pitch. Um, And so because I have great relationships with editors, it's most of the time like, yeah, run with it. Like there's not a lot of back and forth or, you know, workshopping ideas. So I think that that's another benefit too, to really knowing the space is that you Uh can easily spot the trends and things that are new and position those as like, here's something we need to be talking about. So that's a great value add for those types of engagements. If you're interested in doing that kind of thing too. Do you tend to kind of come across those ideas in your other kind of research work? Or is it like after hours, you're scrolling, you're reading, and you're like, wait a second, I see something. It's a little bit of both. But I would say 
probably 75 to 80% of the ideas I get is just from watching Twitter and seeing what people are talking about, Mm -hmm. seeing how people are like, Hey, look at this brand doing X, Y, and Z. This is really new and and, and interesting. And sometimes if the well is dry, I will just go to the expert sources I know and be like, Hey, what are you saying? Um, Give me some ideas on like emerging trends or patterns that you're noticing. And then I can also leverage them as the expert in the story, but it gives me some fuel for ideas. So how do you manage your network? Like, do you have like a spreadsheet or like a CRM? Or just- I used to, I used to, I used to be really strategic about it, but at this point, honestly, and this is so non-scientific, but I will go to Twitter. I have a really curated following list hmm. and I will type in, um, like if I'm looking for an expert source, say I need like somebody who knows consumer packaged goods, um, for example. So I'll go in and type in that keyword into my search bar and then filter it by people I follow. And that'll give me a short list of people oh I can gosh. talk to. So it's a great tool for that. And I, I also monitor like keywords and conversations. So if there are people who are talking about the topic, that's again, a easy way to find people who know about that. So how would you, how would you recommend curating a Twitter following? Like, is it just trial and error? Like I'm going to follow this person. And then you're like, never mind. <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. And so I look for people who focus on one really specific area when they're tweeting. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to know what their expertise is, what they're talking about. I don't mind if they sprinkle in some personal things, that's mm-hmm. totally fine, but I want there to be a good amount of value from the things that they're sharing there. That's also what I try to do with like sharing writing and freelancing insights through mm-hmm. my Twitter account. Um, but it's just a really strict, like I have less than a thousand people that I follow and I'm always kind of going through and being like, this person hasn't said anything for a while. So I'm going to unfollow just keeping it pruned down and making sure that there's as little noise as possible. So I want people who are really active, who are talking about things that are relevant, interesting to what I'm doing. Um, and, and that are well known within the space too. I want people who are not just like brand new to the topic coming in to, to chime in, but like have some sort of foundational expertise around the topics. Right. Yeah. I mean, what you said earlier about God, cutting the noise, it's more real than ever. How oh, would you, so noisy. how do you do that across the board? I know you said newsletters, Twitter, like how would you recommend doing that? Cause I, I personally am struggling with that right now. Yeah. Just be really selective, find out what things you actually find yourself opening, reading, listening to, and mm-hmm. everything else has got to go. Because there's, there's, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of quality out there, but I I think it's different for every person. What is interesting and useful to you? So be really clear about what that looks like and then cut everything else. It's so hard now. It's like, it's so hard. It's, it's an awesome culture. We live in now this like creation culture. I'm thinking it's very, it's more encouraging than it's ever been, but there's Mm -hmm. so much junk. People just Mm -hmm. put stuff out there to be heard. And honestly, and this is speaking from someone who I don't always feel like I deserve to be heard. Like I'm still working on like what I know and what I feel like I have the right to share, but some people just don't like filter themselves. They're just like, (laughs) I just have a voice. Like I'm interesting. I am cool. Mm -hmm. I need to be heard. And I'm like, no, you really don't. (laughs) Why don't you figure out what you like and what you know, and then have a voice. Cause I, so sometimes I hold myself back too, because I don't want to, I don't want to produce junk either, but yeah, I think as long as you have a background in the thing that you're talking about and you are not just like brand new to the space, 
just chiming in to be chiming in, you probably have some unique perspective to share. And so I think a lot of people feel that way where they're like, I don't know if I should say anything. I would always encourage people to participate when it makes sense. Right. Um, But yeah, like look at the people you follow or who you really look up to or like, like, how do they do it? Kind of reverse engineer their approach and try to do something similar. So what newsletters are you connected to? I don't read a whole lot, but there are three that jump out at me. Um, Snackshot by Andrea Hernandez is number one. She's talking about emerging trends within like the snack, drink space and direct consumer. Super interesting, really fun. Um, 2 p.m. is is, uh, one that I've subscribed to for years. That's like um, my go-to source for everything DSC and e-commerce and retail. Great source of information there. Lots of original reports. Really good thing. And then Lean Lux is another one, um, more so even than the newsletter, which is great. I really love this, the private Slack channel that they have. Um, it's kind of hard to get into the Slack channel. There's some rules and requirements you have to meet up with, but that has been such a great source of community for me and for mm-hmm. connecting with experts, different things like that. So those are the big three. Those are awesome. I've never, I've heard of 2 PM, but not the others. So yeah, I'll- they're really, really great. Snack shot. That's cool. I see like all the stuff you post on Instagram, like the drinks and snacks. And I'm like, how does yeah. stuff? It's super fun. Yeah. Well, I have a couple like fun questions for you okay. for the end. Um, that might spurn off other questions, but we'll see. So three biggest catalysts to where you are today. Moments, projects, people, like three biggest ones that you give credit to where you are. Yeah. Two of them, I think I already touched on. So number one was connecting with Emma who worked at a software company and she started the snowball effect for getting into the software as a service space. Um, That was my first time working in that capacity. And then with the e-commerce perspective that I have and how things evolved there, it was kind of good timing, good, right place at right time. Um, So that conversation, that organic thing that just happened on Twitter, that was the first one. Number two was the taking the creative class. That was a big one that opened doors to new opportunities down the road and got me into the teaching space, which I'm still Mm -hmm. doing today. And then the third one would probably be um, so probably about four or five years into freelancing full time. My husband was like, you should set a goal for yourself to get a byline in a big publication by October of this year. And I was like, well, why should I do that? And he was like, well, it's good for authority building. It's something you can put on your resume. It can open doors for conversations because people are happy to get interviewed for, you know, a a big publication like that. It'll give you access that you wouldn't have otherwise. And so I was like, okay. Um, And within like two months, I had Entrepreneur, Fast Company, um, Inc. So yeah, it was just like, that was a good goal for me to have. And I feel like he's always pushing me to do those types of things. And that's work that I still do today. And again, that furthered my stake in the ground with the kind of retail e-commerce space is writing for those publications and the authority that that built further positioned me in that space. So that was a really strategic move. Financially, it wasn't great, (laughs) but like, like I said, it opened doors to conversations And gave me access to people that I wouldn't normally get the chance to talk to. So that was a good benefit. That's awesome. So how do you work with Brandon? Like, do you guys work together often? Um, so we do, it's more behind the scenes than anything else there. He, so he's the one who came up with the idea for content remix, Uh um, which again is like not something we're actively promoting, but it's going really well so far without doing any marketing. Um, he also helps me with kind of the technical stuff. So he built my website 
He always proofreads my newsletters. Mm-hmm. Um, he also came up with Yeah, Write Club, which is another newsletter I run where I do interviews yeah. with editors, authors, writers, um, usually like once or twice a month. I'll put those out. Um, so yeah, he is a great source of ideas. He's always pushing me to try new things, which is sometimes very frustrating and annoying, but it's good. <laughs> um but yeah, he he also is always listening to the business podcast and reading the business books that I won't read. So I get that passively through listening to him, which is a nice like value add. Yeah. He's yeah. Like your, he uh, does a lot behind the scenes though. I have to give him credit for that. So tell me about, yeah, Right Club. How do you meet those folks? How do you decide who to interview? Yeah. I, again, often use Twitter, but sometimes it's a way for me to talk to people that I want to learn more about who they are and what they do. Um, So having the Q&A format with them is a really nice way for me to be curious and ask those questions, but also to give them a spotlight and a platform to tell their story. Um, Some of my favorite interviews that I've done, I got to talk to Eric Larson. He wrote Devil in the White City. Um, and a bunch of other books, but he was one of my favorite authors. So that was really cool to talk to him one-to-one. Um, another, I mean, there's so many, there's so many people who have, um, really diverse backgrounds, um, have really also really struggled to find their place within the writing world. So it's been really interesting to get those insights. It also keeps me humble. I feel like to, to hear about the adversity they faced or the struggles that they've come into, a lot of the journalists that I talk to, that's a really grueling career path. So it really makes me respect the people who do that full time hearing about, you know, just, oh, we need to unionize or the pay is not great. Or there's a lot of pressure within the newsroom, stuff like that. It's, it's great perspective to have. It keeps me happy with what I'm doing. Yeah. I can hear the, and see the excitement in your voice. Would you say that's one of your favorite like passion projects? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's, it's really, what's that? How did you get started with that again? Um, that was just an idea that Brandon had. I think originally we had talked about doing like branded merchandise, which I hope we'll still do down the road, but it just kind of was like, well, we need to have some content to build this up in the first place. And so it was like, well, why don't you do interviews with writers and editors and things like that? So I was like, okay, well, let me see who I know and see see who'd be willing to talk to me. And I think We've probably done like 30 interviews so far over the past couple of years. So we've tried to stay really consistent with it. Sometimes it's hard because people can be really slow to get back, but we put it out as often as we can. And like I said, it's a fun way for me to learn as well. Are they typically live or more email like async? Yeah, I try to do async because I know that people are so busy. So it's usually just a Google form um, or if it's easier, they can do like an audio recording talking through yeah. their answers just to make it yeah. as efficient as possible for them. Cause I know people are busy. Yeah. Well, I'm sure that's easy too, to have um, a few moments to like think on your answer. Yeah. You think then just like respond, even though live conversations are always good for like getting those off the cuff, like ideas mm-hmm. and thoughts, but sometimes the async is preferable. Yeah. Um, awesome. So I've, I have one more question and it's one of my favorite to answer or ask, I'm sorry. What's your favorite mistake that you've made? Oh gosh. Um, Hmm. Let me think on that favorite mistake. You know, I, the thing that's coming to my mind is that when I started doing this, I was doing the social media work, whether it was social media management or advising. And 
I thought I liked that because at the time, again, this was a decade ago, but it was new and it was something I knew about. And it made me feel like I had something valuable to bring to the table, but I got into it and I realized how quickly it changed and how tedious it could be and how time consuming. And you're always on, like you're always fielding messages from people. So I'm glad that I did that to learn that it wasn't what I wanted to do. I feel like sometimes that's the best way to learn is to do something and figure out if it works or it doesn't. And for me, that was like, I don't like this at all. I don't want to do this anymore. Um, And that's what kind of pushed me into the writing path. So it was a good mistake. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, it was the thing that got me to leave the full-time job. I had two contracts doing the social media management and it was a monthly retainer. So it has some financial security to it and it got me to make the leap, but I'm glad that I don't have to do it anymore. <laughs> yeah, I would say so too. That's not my favorite at all. Um, uh, well, I'm glad that you got to where you are today. Cause I know you've definitely, you changed my life five, oh. five ish years ago. Um, and I'm yeah. sure. Yeah made a difference. I think, yeah, you were my very first coaching client. So I'm so yes. glad that we got to learn from each other. Cause now I'm learning from you. I feel like, and yeah. it's so cool to see how far you've what? come and, and all the things that you're doing. Yeah. Well, I mean, <clears throat> I think I found you on entrepreneur. Oh, I found, I remember I was sitting in my cubicle at GE in Louisville <laughs> bored out of my mind. And all I knew is I wanted to write no idea what that looked like. Right. It's like the same thing as trying to explain what you do to like your parents. You're like, I create words, but like at the time I was like, that's all I knew I wanted to do. And I didn't know what it was supposed to look like in practice. And I remember I came across like your byline and I was kind of in a rabbit hole of like clicking and websites and Twitter and all this stuff. And Mm -hmm. then you were like, I write freelance. And I was like, I'm just going to like stalk the heck out of this person and figure (laughs) out how to have their life. And I saw you were doing coaching and I was like, Ooh, perfect. So you definitely yep. changed my life. And I know you've done the same for thousands of other people. So oh, that's so nice. So it does, honestly, I feel like most of the time I'm like working from my home office in the Midwest and like screaming into the void. So it's so nice to hear that. No, you certainly have left a mark on, I know probably thousands, tens of thousands of people. People talk about you all the time in our circle and how big that's of an influence so cool. you are. So yeah, you've done it. That's so cool. Last thing, just share a few, a few ways people can find you, connect with you, projects that you're working on. Yeah. Um, You can find me on Twitter. My handle there is Kaylee F. First name is kind of hard to spell. So probably have to look that up, but I also have a newsletter. So I have several Mm -hmm. newsletters. Obviously I have my core newsletter through my website at KayleeMoore.com where I share tips on writing and freelancing. And I also have YahWriteClub.com where we have the interviews with writers and editors Freelance Writing Coach Podcast is the podcast we talked about where Emma and I talk through issues related to freelance writing. And yeah, that's probably plenty. Check them out. They're all Check awesome. Them out. All right. Well, thank you for joining me today. Yeah. Thanks for having me. 